body. Gee, I've just been away a year and I've already forgotten about uh, the way you do uh, certain things. Thank you for having me this morning. Thank you to the session for inviting me to preach once again here. Uh, so many familiar faces who are my dearest friends. I probably shouldn't say that because it makes me get all emotional, but I'm going to say it anyway. And I pray that you would open uh, your Bibles to John chapter 3. We're going to cover the first 21 verses there. I'm sorry, the first 18 verses there. I'm going to focus on the first eight verses, though, but for context, I'm going to read all that. And if you're able and willing, please stand with me as I read John chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Please hear now God's word. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Let's go before the Lord once again in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you particularly for this passage because we know down through the generations it has been such a comfort to your people to help them settle the question of heaven or hell in their own lives, that they might believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And so, Father, I ask that today for each one of us that it might be a comfort in our lives, giving us hope and faith. We pray, Father, that you would work as only you can work in each one of our lives. And we give you thanks, Father, for what you'll do. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. It 
it sometimes helps to remember your roots, your place of origin, because it helps you to appreciate the relationships, the opportunities, and the privileges that you've had in life. Because when you think about those things, it brings gratitude in your heart for the blessings that you have. And the way that I mean this is I think about in my own life about how these things occur. And I remember my mother and my father. Both of my parents came from very humble beginnings. Or families who most of the lives that I knew were farmers. And so my parents never had the opportunity to go to college. I was the first person in my family that had the opportunity to go to college. And the reason I was able to do so, that even though my parents had a very poor beginning, they left home, got jobs, went to work, saved their money, and they opened their own business. They went into the dry cleaning business, and they were quite successful in that business financially compared to the backgrounds that they had. And they provided for me the opportunities that I later had, which produced a great deal of gratitude for me. And so it helps to have a perspective of humility that one is not completely a self-made person. And so on this occasion, as we look forward to a new year, it helps us to develop the proper orientation in our lives. We are all not self-made people either, especially not in the spiritual realm. It helps us to remember that we were provided a relationship, a privilege, and an opportunity in our lives by somebody that's much greater than our parents or anybody else that we know. And of course, I'm talking about God. And we find such helpful teaching in John chapter 3. Jesus is very early in his ministry. He's made one of his early trips to Jerusalem in the previous chapter. He's cleansed the temple of the money changers, and he's answered the question about what sign does he show in doing this. And he says, in doing this, uh, I can destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it back up. And so in the occasion of our chapter, a man named Nicodemus comes to interview Jesus, and verse 1 tells us that Nicodemus was one of the Pharisees. And as we read the rest of the New Testament accounts, we learn that the Pharisees were the strictest of the Jews in observing the Old Testament law. They were very particular about obeying the commandments that Moses had laid down, including, or not including, but they also were very particular about obeying the tradition of the elders, the oral law that was added to those Old Testament commandments. And further than that, the gospel teach us that the Pharisees were one of the greatest enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ. Later in John's gospel, we learn that it was the Pharisees that were helped leading the charge, so to speak, to go out and arrest the Lord Jesus Christ while he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so when Nicodemus appears being described as one of the Pharisees, 
it raises a certain amount of fear in our hearts and saying he's one of those guys that led to the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. It further says in verse 1 that Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. The Romans ruled over the Jews at this particular time, but they allowed the Jews to have a certain amount of freedom. And the Sanhedrin was the supreme ruling body over the Jews under the authority of the Romans. And it appears that Nicodemus at least had very high ecclesiastical office and that he was probably a member of the Sanhedrin, although the scriptures do not specifically say. But when it says that he was a ruler of the Jews rather than a ruler of the synagogue, it suggests that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. And he comes to Jesus by night. Well, why did he do that? Why didn't he come to Jesus during broad daylight where everyone could see him? Possibly because Jesus was busy during the day. He was teaching his disciples. He was meeting with people who were admirers of him. Could be a lot of other reasons why he didn't go to him during the day. He wanted to have an extended conversation with Jesus. So maybe because of Jesus' time, he was afraid he wouldn't be able to get that extended time. Or maybe it was Nicodemus was afraid of being seen by his fellow rulers He didn't want to be known as one who was the friend of somebody who chased all the money changers out of the temple, a practice that was approved of and established by the leadership of the Jews. So maybe Nicodemus was afraid of what people would think of him, and he wanted to preserve his reputation. Well, the fact is we don't know which of these that it is. It could have been either one of them. We do not know whether his attitude was what it should have been towards the Lord Jesus Christ or whether it was not what it should have been. However, we see his actions later in John's gospel when he tried to defend Jesus to the chief priest and to the other Pharisees. In John chapter 7, verse 51, he said to them when they... Uh, were seeking to arrest Jesus, he says, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he did? And so Nicodemus was trying to get Jesus a fair shake with the authorities that he wouldn't have to face a kangaroo court. However, when we look at it, it's sort of a weak defense of the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't come out and say, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah that we have long awaited for, and therefore the things that he's doing are just and right. We have no right to put him on trial. But he didn't do that. And so this was not a strong defense of uh, Jesus. And we can see that Nicodemus is somewhat hesitating at this stage of his life. He was somewhat timid at first. But eventually he became one of Jesus' most devoted disciples. It says in the last encounter in John's gospel that he, along with Joseph of Arimathea, had the courage to go and ask for the body of Jesus because they wanted to bury that body. They wanted to be respectful towards the, the teacher that they admired so much. 
And this was a great act of courage and perhaps of faith as well on the part of Nicodemus because one that did such thing could end up meeting the same end that Jesus had met in his life. And so we learn from this that even though Nicodemus came from those who were among the Lord Jesus' greatest enemies, And even though he started out hesitatingly and timidly, we shouldn't be too hard on Nicodemus. Many of us might be able to remember a time when we were rather hesitant to come to Christ ourselves. I can remember saying to Linda one time that, you know, we don't want to become fanatics in that church and let those people get their hooks on us because we'll end up spending all of our time down there. I was just as timid and hesitating as Nicodemus was. And so what this does is it should encourage us not to despise someone because they begin to inquire hesitatingly and timidly about the things of Christ. We should deal with them patiently and gently as the Lord Jesus dealt with Nicodemus and as we would want the Lord Jesus Christ to deal with us. For who knows but that this hesitating and timid person may become a courageous and undeterred and unashamed disciple like Nicodemus did later in the Gospels. But in spite of his hesitancy, Nicodemus acknowledged that Jesus was somewhat special. He refers to him in the respectful way of calling him rabbi. And he says that we know that God is with you because of these signs or these miracles that you do. Nobody could do these miracles unless God is with him. Exactly, Nicodemus. How else could Jesus do the powerful works that he did unless God was the power working through him? And Jesus says to Nicodemus in verse 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, how did this relate to what was going on in Nicodemus' mind? How does this relate to the price of tea in China, you know? And the Lord Jesus shows by this that he knows exactly what's going on in people's hearts when they come to him. Nicodemus wasn't quite able yet to express the question that he wanted to put forward to Jesus, but Jesus put his finger exactly on the concern that Nicodemus had. All the Jews, like Nicodemus, were looking for their promised Messiah. And it's probable that Nicodemus suspects that he has found the Messiah in Jesus. And so Jesus begins with the indispensable quality that is necessary if someone would enter Messiah's kingdom. Entering Messiah's kingdom is saying the same thing as having salvation or being saved or having everlasting life. And he's further saying he or she must be born again. And relevant to Nicodemus, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And so he believed in his superior position as a Jew, being a descendant of Abraham. He thought that gave him favor with God. And as I said a few minutes ago, uh, being a Pharisee, he was very, very scrupulous in his keeping of the Old Testament law and the oral tradition of the elders. But RVG's tasker says, no one, quote, no one, Jesus told him, can experience the reign of God no matter what his race or his degree of piety may be apart from the experience of new birth. 
for neither racial privilege nor punctilious observance of religious practices can efface or do away with the sin that is inherent in every child of Adam. And so Nicodemus had a very expendable, even useless attitude rather than the indispensable quality of the new birth. Now it could be when Jesus says you must be born again, this could be translated, you must be born from above. I believe every place else that this uh, term is used in John's gospel, it's translated born from above. However, since Nicodemus talks about entering the womb of your mother a second time, it seems that he has at least in mind being born again rather than being born above. And so that is the way that it's translated in every major translation. And so that is the way we should understand it. Although as we shall see, being born from above is also what happens when someone is born again. Well, what does it mean to be born again? That's what Nicodemus' response is in verse 4 to what Jesus says in verse 3. He was perplexed when he says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? In other words, he said, you've got to be kidding. How is it possible that a person can be born again? This is ridiculous. So Jesus elaborates on what he meant in verses 5 through 8. Just as he did in verse 3, he begins in verse 5 with the explanation, truly, truly. And we get our English word amen from the Greek word that is behind these words, truly, truly. The Greek words are amen, amen, from which we get amen. And Vine's Expository Dictionary says of the words, when amen is said by God, it means it is and shall be so. And when it is used by men... It means, so let it be. And so the Lord Jesus Christ says, truly, truly, he means it is and it shall be so because God is saying this to you. And everywhere he says, truly, truly, in John's gospel, he says it twice. And so he indicates by this that it is doubly important what he's about to say. And therefore, when he says so, our ears ought to perk up. We ought to be riveted on what he is about to say because it's really, really important. And so he says in verse 5, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Some people think by this that when Jesus says you have to be born of water, that he means water baptism, that the mere application of water produces the new birth or what is called otherwise baptismal regeneration. However, since the Lord was speaking to a Pharisee, it's hard to understand Nicodemus's astonishment in verse 9 at Jesus' explanation because water baptism was used before the coming of Christ in Judaism, and Nicodemus would have been familiar with it. And further than that, it's hard to understand why the Lord Jesus rebuked him in chapter in verse 10, for not knowing that baptism causes spiritual regeneration. Because how could he expect 
Nicodemus to understand that, that even though he did understand that baptism was being practiced, nowhere in the Old Testament does it teach that baptism produces spiritual regeneration. And so the Lord Jesus is not talking about water baptism. However, we do know from this that water baptism symbolizes spirit baptism. And spirit baptism is what the Lord Jesus Christ is talking about. And so since Nicodemus was a Pharisee and intimately acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures, undoubtedly the Lord Jesus was talking to him about something that he would understand. And he was talking to him from the Old Testament. Otherwise, how could he have expected Nicodemus to know what he was talking about? And the most obvious place where this subject is talked about in the Old Testament is in Ezekiel chapter 36. In verse 24 and following, God is telling Israel that he's going to bring them back from exile in Babylon. And he says there in verse 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all of your uncleannesses and from all of your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of, fle- and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. And so when the Lord Jesus says that you must be born of water, he's not talking about water baptism, but he's talking about inward purification. Something has to remove the corruption, the evil that we're all naturally born with when we inherited our sinful natures from the fall of Adam in the Garden of Edom. And so the Holy Spirit applies that cleansing to us. He removes our heart of stone, that hard heart that is not compliant with us, and gives us a heart of flesh. And that's exactly what he's talking about, that you have to be born with the Spirit. The Spirit not only wipes away the bad that's in us, but he gives us the good. He gives us a heart of flesh which is soft and compliant to the will of the Lord. And so he changes the inclination that we have to always resisting God, never wanting to believe what God says, not trusting in God in every way to be exactly the opposite that we want to believe what God says. We want to have faith in the things of the kingdom of God and we want to receive the salvation that God offers to us, which of course means believing in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is called regeneration and a person is brought from spiritual death in which we are all born to spiritual life and is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. J.C. Ryle says being born again means that a complete change of heart and character which is produced in a man by the Holy Ghost when he repents, believes on Christ, and becomes a true Christian. Human nature is so entirely corrupt, diseased, and ruined by the fall that all who would be saved must be born again. No less change will suffice. 
They, will, they need nothing less than a new birth. And this is what Jesus means, that without experiencing the new birth, one cannot enter the kingdom of God. To enter the kingdom, which is now present through the Lord Jesus Christ's coming, is to experience the salvation of the kingdom through the new birth. And the instrument of receiving the kingdom's salvation is seeing the kingdom in verse 3, where Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, seeing the kingdom of God is surely the act of perceiving the reality of the kingdom in Jesus. Or, in other words, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so faith in the kingdom is preceded by the new birth. One cannot believe until he or she has been born again. And this is exactly what John says in his epistle. He says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And so the new birth precedes believing in Jesus and produces believing in Jesus. In other words, when we repent and believe the gospel, that repentance and that belief comes from the new birth that we have already experienced. It might have been a little bit confusing just a minute ago when I read to you about J.C. Ryle because he sort of said just the opposite of this. He says when somebody believes in Christ, he experiences the new birth. I don't think that the order of these events is really what J.C. Ryle is talking about, but John Murray cleans it up for us all, and I'm going to say that in just a second. He says in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applies, we are not born again by faith or repentance or conversion, We repent and believe because we have been regenerated. No one can say in truth that Jesus is the Christ except by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. And that is one of the ways by which the Holy Spirit glorifies Christ. The embrace of Christ in faith is the first evidence of regeneration. And only thus may we know that we have been regenerated. In verse 6, Jesus further says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And when he uses the term flesh here, flesh has different meanings in different places in Scripture. It depends on the context as to the meaning. But here it refers to man's natural ability. And from what Jesus said, man's natural ability, his flesh does not profit with regard to his relationship with God. His flesh produces no spiritual ability. So man is not able to cause himself to be born again. And so someone might respond at this point in the service. Ken, you keep telling us that we have to be born again. We must be born again. We must be born of the water and the spirit. Now you're telling us we can't accomplish that on our own. And that is exactly right. We cannot accomplish being born again because that is what the Holy Spirit does according to verse 8. The Holy Spirit is independent. He cannot be controlled. He's like the wind. We know the wind is there. We feel it. We hear it. But we can't control it and we don't know where it comes from. And the Holy Spirit is exactly the same same way. He is sovereign in the new birth and he gives it to whom and when he pleases. 
And so God is sovereign in producing the new birth. However, man's responsibility in this passage is stated in verse 16, which is to believe in the Son of God. And so we see even in the same passage that God's sovereignty is taught right along with man's responsibility. And so what we need to be concerned about is not so much whether we are born again and how to produce the new birth, but whether we have accomplished the responsibility that God has given to us. We need to believe in Jesus, the Son of God. And so how is it with you today? Has there ever been a time in your life where you came to receive Jesus as your Lord and your Savior? Have you realized that you cannot save yourself and that your sins that you have surely committed, just like the rest of us have, causes God's offense and he will condemn you for eternity if you do not repent and believe in his Son? Repentance means turning away from the old life, turning away from sin and turning to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith to give you forgiveness and putting all of your trust, all of your reliance on him and none of your trust in yourself. You cannot do good deeds that are pleasing to the Lord because the Lord requires perfection and only Jesus is perfect enough to pay the penalty for your sins as your substitute and also earn a righteousness that you cannot earn for yourself. And God grants you in response to faith in him, Jesus's righteousness to make you right before God. We're talking in adult Sunday school about righteousness and What does it require for God to forgive people? God is perfectly righteous. He requires you to be perfectly righteous. The question is, how do you get that righteousness? You can't drum it up on your own. You can't do enough deeds because they are like filthy rags to God. But he'll give you the free gift of righteousness that Jesus earned, and he will credit it to your account. Even though you've never done those deeds, God accounts you as righteous through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What if you are a believer here today? How does this apply to you? Well, it's good to remember that we are not self-determined, autonomous people who did it your way, as Frank Sinatra said so many years ago in a song that you had to depend on somebody else to give you the things that you needed that provided you a relationship with God, opportunities to live the Christian life and the privileges and blessings that God has given you every day of your life, whether you were a believer or even an unbeliever. And so it's good to start off this new year with that perspective, to remember what God has done for us in the past because it produces a humble and a grateful attitude that we should have in our service to God. Not so that we can say, well, I think I'll just lay back and let God do everything because he's done everything to provide me with salvation up to this point. But that's not what he says. What he says is the new birth produces all of these graces in us. 
God will do everything for us to give us the power to do things, but he tells us to do it. He tells us to obey his commandments. And so therefore we begin this year knowing that God has granted us the power to do everything that we need to do in his service. But we know so that God is the origin of all the ability that we have. Let's close in prayer.